So as most of you know, we are currently making our way through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We are early into our study. We're here in just the first chapter, and we've been looking at verses 3 through 14, and we come today to verse 7. Now, up until this point, uh, Paul has, uh, as we pointed out, he's been declaring to us God's great work of salvation, and he's been highlighting the work of God the Father. And he has uh, told us that it, it was God the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, in love, he also predestined us as adoption. Uh, he, he predestined us to adoption as children by Jesus Christ to himself. And then Paul says, as we previously considered, uh, he's done all of this uh, by his glorious grace and, and through his glorious grace, he has accepted us in the beloved or he's made us accepted in the beloved or as we pointed out, he's highly favored us in the beloved. And so this brings us now to a consideration of the work of the beloved, the work of the son, the work of the second person of the Trinity, the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And verse 7, seven then tells us, in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And so redemption. The Bible is all about redemption. We are a redeemed people and literally from cover to cover in scripture, that is what we find. Uh, redemption means deliverance by payment of a price. Deliverance by payment from a price. So we are redeemed people. We have been delivered by the payment of a price. And redemption is especially applied to the ransoming of slaves. The ransoming of slaves. The, the pain of a price to set people free, uh, primarily from slavery. The great Old Testament example is Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And God used the, the term redemption when he spoke of what he would do for them. There in Exodus, he said, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And so we find this repeated over and over again. I think of the, the 103rd Psalm where uh, we're told there about uh, the, the blessings and the, the many things that, that God does for us. And, and one of them is that he redeems your life from destruction. So the, this theme of redemption, it is woven throughout the entire scripture. It is really one of the main themes of the Bible. When we come to the New Testament, we have many, many references to Christ redeeming us. One of them we're looking at here this morning. But let me give you a few uh, other examples in Matthew 20, verse 28, 
Jesus said this. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So to give his life a ransom, it's to, that, that is to pay the, the price of redemption. Jesus came to pay the price of redemption, he said. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he would use this very terminology. He spoke of Jesus Christ as having given himself as a ransom for all. When Peter wrote his first letter in the first chapter, uh, the 18th and the 19th verses, he said this. He said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So you see, all through the New Testament, this, this threat of redemption is running. When we come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and there in the fifth chapter, we have this, this picture of what it's going to be like as we all are assembled there before the throne of God. These are the words that we read. It says, now when he, speaking of Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, he took the scroll out of the hand of the, of the father sitting upon the throne. As he did that, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, listen, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is the song that we are going to be singing someday, the song of redemption. You were slain and you have redeemed us to God. And so as we see here, when, when Paul says that in him, in the son, we have redemption, he's, he's, expounding on this, this theme that is uh, one of the primary themes of the entire scripture. We, we could actually refer to the Bible uh, as the history of redemption. That's really what it is. You know, sometimes people are a bit um, puzzled as to why the Bible doesn't give more details about, uh, you know, certain people or places or, you know, things like that. Well, we have to understand the Bible is not a, a history of the world. It's not even a history of any particular nation. It, it, to some degree, it's a history of the nation of Israel. But it is primarily the history of redemption. That's what we have in the scripture. Now, as we're saying here, the, uh, the redemption is from slavery and the slavery is slavery to sin. Jesus said in John chapter eight, he said, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave of sin, that's where we find ourselves. That's the, the entire human race is in this uh, situation where we are all enslaved to sin. And in some cases that um, is more obvious than in other cases, but regardless of, of whether it is blatant and observable or not, it is true 
our natural state is one of being enslaved to sin. We do things we don't want to do and we don't do things that we want to do and know we should do. That's the human condition, isn't it? You know, in, in our uh, current cultural situation, we, there's a lot of talk about addiction and there's a lot of people who are uh, addicted to a variety of things. And um, addiction used to be limited primarily to um, you know, physiological things and, and addiction to substances, you know, drug addiction or addiction to alcohol and so forth. But, you know, today the, uh, the whole idea of addiction has really broadened to include so many things uh, that people find themselves addicted to, meaning think behaviors that they're engaging in that they don't really want to engage in to some degree. They know these, these um, behaviors are detrimental to themselves and to others, but they can't seem to stop doing it. So today we have people who are addicted to pornography. We have people who are addicted to gambling. We have people to, who are uh, addicted to shopping. We have people who are uh, you know, addicted to a variety of different things. You know what addiction is, or, or, or the term itself, really? It is just a, a modern, sort of a secular term for what the Bible would refer to as slavery to sin. It's, it's extreme uh, forms of slavery to sin. Jesus came to break those uh, powers over us, that, that hold us, that bind us. He came to, to break the power of sin in our lives. I like what uh, Mark Driscoll said in his book, um, Who Do You Think You Are? He, he wrote this, in Christ, you're redeemed. Whatever has enslaved you, be it drugs, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, fears, or something else, Jesus has redeemed you. You no longer have to be enslaved to such things because Jesus died for your sin. You can put your sin to death. And I like this. Walk away from whoever or whatever has enslaved you and enjoy a new life to worship God freely. That's what Jesus does. He gives us the ability to walk away. He opens the prison door. He sets the captives free. That's what the scripture declared he would do. And he does this through... What we're talking about here, this is what he's accomplished through redemption. He has redeemed us. He has set us free from the captivity to sin. Now, I want you to notice that Paul says that we have redemption through his blood. Now, I believe Paul uses blood here very intentionally. Now, Paul could have said as he actually does say in other places or other biblical writers would say the same thing, uh, he could have said that we have redemption through his death, which of course is true. But he intentionally uses blood. Why does he do that? Well, he's doing it to make the connection back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, we've got to remember this. Jesus didn't just show up in history without um, any previous notification that he was going to come. He just didn't you know, come out of nowhere 
and suddenly start doing these things and, and ultimately, you know, end up being crucified on a cross and then telling everybody, well, you know, this is how the sins of the world are forgiven. That, it didn't happen that way. There was this long, long history of preparation through the Old Testament sacrificial system. So Jesus' death on the cross and the shedding of his blood was the fulfillment of what those uh, Old Testament sacrifices were anticipating. You see, he came in fulfillment of those things. The Levitical sacrificial system, and what that's referring to would be that elaborate system that was developed. God gave all the instructions to Moses, and Moses implemented this. There was a a uh, tabernacle that was erected. It was, it was built out. That was the place where the sacrifices could be offered. There was a priesthood that was instituted. They would be the ones to offer the sacrifices. And then there were very specific instructions given on um, you know, what kind of sacrifices were to take place. So this Levitical sacrificial system was established approximately 1,400 years before the time that Christ came into the world. 1,400 years before Jesus came, all of this was instituted. Now, about halfway through that, about 700 BC, Isaiah wrote these words. In Isaiah 53, he wrote this, speaking of the servant of the Lord who was to come, he wrote, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, here's the amazing thing. Halfway through this 1,400-year period, all of a sudden, God shines some light in, and we get a glimpse into what these sacrifices are all about. The sacrifices themselves could never really permanently take away sin. Hebrews tells us that. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They temporarily could cover it, but they could never take it away. But these things were pointing to the Savior, the Messiah, who would come and he would offer up himself as a sacrifice. And so Isaiah was given the privilege of of making this known. So suddenly there was something else being connected to the whole sacrificial system, something to do with the Messiah, which at the time, uh, nobody would have really understood that. But then further along, as the prophets would, would continue to prophesy and as, the, uh, as, as they would get nearer to the actual coming of Jesus, th- this picture began to be a little bit more spelled out. But Jesus comes and he then brings the the full and complete revelation of what was really intended by those sacrifices. But you know, you can go even further back than the institution of the Levitical system through Moses. You can go all the way back to the very beginning of time. God has been communicating this message from the very beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis. And maybe you remember the story there. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And when they sinned, 
suddenly they realized something that they did not previously know. They realized that they were naked. And they suddenly experienced shame because of their sin. And what did they do? They attempted to cover their nakedness and were told that they made fig leaves to cover their nakedness. But those fig leaves were inadequate. And so we're told there that God, he covered them with animal skins. And what he did is he slew animals, lambs, presumably, and he covered them. And that is the beginning of God uh, communicating to us that we could never cover our own sin and shame. Our sin and shame must be covered by him, and it must be covered by the death of an innocent victim. All the way back to the very beginning, that message began to be communicated. And then as time went on further, we come to Abraham. And Abraham is called by God to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and to offer him on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham does that. He goes in obedience and he takes Isaac with him. And Isaac is a, is a grown man at this time. He's, a, he's you know, probably a man in his 20s. And as they're making their way up the hill for the sacrifice to take place, Isaac notices something. He notices they've got the wood for the sacrifice. He's noticed they've got the, the means to, to make the fire. But he recognizes something's missing. And he says to Abraham, his father, he says, Father, uh, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said this. He said, my son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Now, I, uh, Abraham was speaking prophetically. The Lord would provide himself a sacrifice. Yes, there would be a sacrifice that would ultimately be provided God would provide himself. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus came. He's God the Son, and he himself becomes the sacrifice. And so we have it there. We have it in the Passover lamb in Egypt. Remember, as God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, you remember the method that he used. There was uh, instruction given uh, that God was going to pass through the land and he was, he was going to slay all of the firstborn in the land. And this was the instruction that he gave that the people were to take a lamb, they were to slay it, and they were to put the blood over the doorpost of their homes. And God said, wherever I see the blood, I will pass over. The, wherever the blood is, there will be exemption from judgment, in other words. And so we see this being played out all throughout history, the, the Passover lamb. Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and remember the first thing that was said about him by John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How's he gonna take away the sin of the world? He's gonna take it away by the shedding of his blood. And then as we go, we find that uh, the lamb that was slain on the day of atonement. The blood was taken. It was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. So my point is this. All of these things were looking forward to Christ as the lamb whose blood was shed to take away our sin. So from the very dawn of time, 
throughout all of the, the preceding history, right up to the cross itself, it was all being uh, spelled out and prepared for, and Jesus came in fulfillment of it. And so as Paul is, is explaining to us here uh, the greatness of our salvation and the involvement of the persons uh, of the, the, you know, the persons of the Godhead is the word that's used quite often. But uh, those three persons who make up the one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, God, the plan originated with God. He planned it, but the Son is the one who is now carrying it out by coming and allowing his blood to be shed so that our redemption can come. And so in him we have redemption through his blood. And then also we have the forgiveness of sins. Now this is a separate thing, but it's connected. Redemption and forgiveness are two different things, but but they're connected because the blood is necessary for both the redemption and for the forgiveness of sins to come. Forgiveness of sins, what an amazing thing it is. You know, have you ever... And, and, and let's not even talk about for just the moment here. Let's not even talk about the forgiveness that God gives us, but let's just think of it more on, on the human level. Have you ever done something where you've hurt somebody, you've offended somebody? You, you know, you've, you've done something really bad or wrong to somebody and they have forgiven you. Have you, have you ever had that experience? You know what a, what a wonderful experience that is, really. To be forgiven is a wonderful thing. To know that that foolish thing, that, you know, in some cases, that evil thing that you've done, to know that that's no longer being held against you, that is, that is one of the greatest feelings in all the world. To have that guilt lifted off of us. I've told this story before, and I didn't tell it at the other services, but I'll, I'll tell it right now. Um, I had that experience many, many years ago. Uh, just again, strictly on the human level, um, where I had done something and I, I kept it hidden because I was so embarrassed having done it, I didn't want to confess it. But I, I finally had to confess it. And when I did and I received the forgiveness, oh, it was just, it was such a wonderful thing. But what happened is years and years ago, um, uh, Pastor Chuck used to. Uh, he did all kinds of wonderful things for Cheryl and I, and you know he would always come over to our house and you know help with uh, maintaining the yard or you know fixing up the house or uh, building a fence or you know whatever. He was always very very helpful with those kinds of things. So um, one of the things he did was uh, he bought me a really nice lawnmower, and so he bought me a nice lawnmower. One day he came over and he was I think he was in the backyard. He was working. Uh, on a fence or something. And his car was parked out along uh, the front of the house there. And uh, the, the wonderful lawnmower that he got for me, I pulled it out and I was mowing the lawn there. And I, I went out to mow that strip of grass that's kind of between your house and the sidewalk there. And as I was mowing, um, the, the basket on the mower, there was a metal uh, part of it on the edge and, you know, the lawnmower is really loud, so you're not really hearing anything. I'm going along. All of a sudden, I look up, and I am putting this massive scratch 
uh, from one end of Pastor Chuck's car all the way to the other with uh, the basket on my lawnmower. And I see that. I mean, it's literally gone from the very front of the car all the way to the back, probably a good quarter of an inch of paint peeled completely off. And I looked at that and I thought, oh my goodness. I cannot believe I've done this. Here the guy is in the, he's in my backyard building a fence for us so our little girl doesn't fall in the pool. And I'm out here peeling the paint off of his car. What an ingrate son-in-law I am. So I, I was so embarrassed by having done that. I, just, I couldn't tell him. So I just didn't say a word. I just, you know, I didn't say a word. I just finished mowing the lawn, went back and helped him in the backyard with the fence and uh, never said a word. Well, a few days later, he noticed what had happened to his car. And the next thing I heard is, you know, how, how bad he was feeling that somebody would, would do that to him. He couldn't believe it. And um, I'll never forget, you know, he, he said, and I was right there in his presence. He said, yeah, I don't know. Somebody must hate me or something. It looks like they took a key and they just peeled the paint right off my car. And he's telling Cheryl and I'm standing there and I'm like, wow, who would have done something like that? You know, that boy. No, I don't think it's anybody who hates you. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know how it happened, but you know, so I just, I just didn't have the, I didn't have the guts to tell him it was me. So here's the deal though. This went on for like three weeks and, it, and, and, and this really bothered Chuck. He just couldn't get over it. He, he was really concerned that somebody had done this and somebody, you know, somebody hated him. And so, you know, I'm, I'm keeping this to myself, obviously. And every time, it just kind of seems to keep coming up over and over again. I'm like, oh, gosh, not the car again. So finally, what happens is Cheryl and I are driving along. And out of nowhere, she brings it up. My poor dad, he is just so sad these days about what happened to his car. And he just feels like somebody hates him. And she's looking at me. She's like, can you believe somebody would do that to my dad's car? That is so cruel. That is so mean. And by this time, it's like, okay, I cannot take this any longer. So finally, so finally, I looked at her. I go, I go, I did it. (laughs) And she looked at me with daggers in her eyes you did. You did it. You scratched my dad's car. How dare you scratch my dad's car? I said, I did it on an accident. Honey, I didn't do it on purpose. So I told her the whole story about the lawnmower and she started laughing and thinking, oh, I can't, I can't believe that. And so, um, so finally she said, well, you got to tell him. And I was like, yeah, I knew by now because it, you know, this thing wouldn't go away. It just kept coming up. I knew I had to tell him. So I called him on the phone and I said, Chuck, I got to talk to you for a second. Yes. Uh, I said, Chuck, you know the scratch in your car? Yes. Uh, Chuck, I put that scratch in your car. Oh. (laughs) That was his response. I said, Chuck, I did it on an accident. And I told him the story of the lawnmower. (laughs) Praise the Lord. That's what he said. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Somebody's not out to get me. That's what he would say, you know, but I'll tell you, 
the, the guilt that I was living with, the burden that was on me for those three weeks. Oh man, it was so intense. And when he said, praise the Lord, it was like the thing just lifted off me. Oh, I was free. I was set free. You know, that's a humorous story of, of a human experience of being forgiven for a relatively minor thing. But you know, there's nothing quite so wonderful as knowing that God has forgiven us our sins. And not just little mistakes here and there, not just little uh, foibles that we might have um, accidentally, even in some cases, you know, done. But no, he, he's forgiven us of all of the, the real stuff, the intentional stuff, the, the wicked, the evil stuff that we've done. He's forgiven us. Now, here, here's the thing. When it comes to forgiveness, if there was ever a place where God was in a dilemma, and it's not probably really right to say God is in a dilemma, but in a sense, you could say that he was. In this way, God was in a bit of a dilemma because here's the question. How does a holy and just God forgive sin and still retain his justice? And you see, for us to just, you know, forgive somebody by just saying, hey, we'll, we'll just overlook that. You know, we can do that because we're sinners ourselves. We've, you know, sometimes we do that and we'll say in our minds, we might say, oh yeah, I've done something like that before. Don't worry about it. It's not a problem. And, and we'll let it go. But you see, God can't do that because God is, as God, he is perfectly righteous and just. He is the just judge. You know, some people say, well, why didn't God just overlook it? Why didn't he just say, okay, look, Adam and Eve, you know, you ate that fruit. Listen, I told you not to do it. We're going to, you know, we're going to let bygones be bygones. It's water under the bridge, but listen, don't do it again. Why couldn't God do that? You see, God couldn't do that because of who he is. Because he declared that to do such a thing would bring a specific consequence. And of course, God is bound to keep his word. And yet also, because he's just, a just judge cannot just let people off the hook. Now, if I were to go into court before a judge and I was guilty and the judge said, you know, I know you're guilty. It's all crystal clear here, but I'm feeling really good today. I'm just going to let you off the hook. You're acquitted. You're free. Get out of here. Don't do it again. Now, you know, I might walk out of there going, man, what a nice guy. Well, that judge is really cool. And he might have been a nice guy and a cool guy, but he was a horrible judge. You see, a judge is supposed to uphold justice. God is the just judge. So this, again, this is the dilemma. This is the question. How does a holy and just God forgive sin? Well, here's how he did it. He did it by providing forgiveness through the pain of the penalty himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The penalty for sin has to be paid. You can't pay it. I can't pay it. None of us can pay it. We don't have what it takes. So what's the options? Well, the options are 
we have to be utterly condemned or somehow there has to be some forgiveness, but we don't have the ability to pay the debt. So what does God do in the person of his son? He steps in and he pays the debt himself. That's what happened on the cross. And we sang it this morning. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's, that's the truth. Jesus paid a debt that we could never pay. And in paying that debt for us, that then freed God to offer us the forgiveness of sins. And in doing so, he retains his justice. His justice is not violated. It remains fully intact. The, the penalty for the sin has been paid by Jesus. And now God can lavish his love upon us. He can offer us the forgiveness of sins. And that's what he does. And that's what he's done. And many of us has, have received that. And we know the, the glory of that. We know how wonderful that is to know that our sins have been forgiven. But you know, this is what you need to know. There's not a single sin. There's no sin that is not forgivable. The only sin Jesus said that could never be forgiven is what the Bible would call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But what that means is it's a rejection of Christ. But apart from that, there's no other sin that is too great for God to forgive. Now, of course, since God forgives us in Christ, if we reject Christ, there is no forgiveness. But apart from rejecting Christ, everything else can be forgiven. Now, some of us in this room have committed some pretty serious sins. And thank God he's freely forgiven us those things. But you know, I don't know how many of us in this room have committed atrocities. I don't know how many of us, if any of us in this room, have have committed really horrific types of sins. But listen, even those kinds of sins have been paid for. Even those kinds of sins are forgivable. Even the kinds of people that have committed them can be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That's the amazing thing about this gospel. The blood of Jesus cleanses a man from every sin. There is no sin that's too great. And man, if you stop and think about the the atrocities that have been committed, when you stop and think about the things that people do to other people and all of the horrific things, you know, sometimes we see these insane things in the news. We read about these atrocities that go on in different places around the world people are just senselessly slaughtered and murdered, or we read about some absolute lunatic who, you know, goes in and murders an innocent family or, you know, these kinds of things, dismemberment, all, all of the insanity that, that we see out there. Here's the, here's the reality. All of that vileness and wickedness and every form of perversity and corruption, it was all laid upon Jesus. And he was punished for every bit of it. And so there's not a single sin 
they can't be forgiven. There's not a single person that has done more than Christ paid for. There's no one out there, no one anywhere in the world that if they were to turn to Christ today, regardless of what they've done, could not be forgiven. That's the amazing thing about the forgiveness of sins. It's thorough, it's complete, and it is forever. Here's what you need to know. If you are in Christ, and this is how it all takes place. This is how the forgiveness comes. It comes by, uh, he says, in him, remember? And all through this thing, he's talking about being in Christ. And the way to get in Christ is by receiving Christ. But for everyone who is in Christ, what we need to know is that we are totally, completely, and eternally forgiven. That is the good news. Totally, completely, and eternally forgiven. Whatever your regrets might be, whatever haunts you, maybe it's the words you've spoken, the deeds you've done, the harm you've caused, the people you've hurt, whatever it is. If you come to Christ in humility and sincerity and say, God, forgive me, he'll do it. He will do it. It's amazing. You know, my cousin used to work as a correction officer in a prison. And he's, uh, well, I haven't talked to him in many years, but uh, my last conversation with him, he wasn't a believer. And he knew that I had become a Christian and I was in the ministry and occasionally we would talk. And, you know, he, he said, oh, these people in prison, you know, they're just, nobody in here could ever really get converted. You know, these guys are criminals, they're liars, they're deceivers. You know, he had a very negative outlook on the whole thing. And, and understandably, he was, he was part of the system. He saw it all. But he happened to be um, there at a prison where uh, there was a, a notorious murderer was there. And this guy had received Christ. He made a confession of faith. And now after 25 plus years of going on, we, we see that his confession was legitimate. He's, he's followed Christ for these 25 years. He's been a, a good uh, example in the, in the prison. And, you know, it's, it's been the real deal. My, my point is this. My cousin just could not believe that it would really be possible for a person like that to genuinely get saved, be forgiven. Now, like I said, I understand his skepticism, but at the same time, we have plenty of evidence that those things do happen. God does forgive anyone who sincerely asks him, and the proof that they've been forgiven is the transformation that comes in their lives. So know this today, that in him there is the forgiveness of sins, and there's nothing that you've ever done that he hasn't forgiven you for if you've received him or that he won't forgive you for if you've yet to receive him, but will call upon him to save you. He will forgive you of everything. But there's no other way to get forgiveness. And without forgiveness, we labor under the burden of the guilt and the shame and, and the, the crushing um, effects of that. And people go to therapists and they go to different things and they end up going to substances and things to try to alleviate the guilt and, and 
you know, get themselves out from under the burden. You, you can never do it. It's impossible. We live in a culture where nobody wants to feel guilty. Well, of course, you can be guilty for things that you shouldn't be guilty for, but we've got plenty to be guilty for. So it's okay if there's some guilt. We're supposed to be guilty when we have sinned. But the guilt is to show us our need for deliverance. So as you respond to that guilt, not by denying it, not by denying that you've ever done anything wrong, but by just taking full responsibility and say, yes, I have sinned. And you come to the Lord, no matter who you are, or what you've done, he, he forgives you. That's the beautiful truth of the gospel. How does he do this? Well, Paul tells us finally, and we've been talking about it for weeks, he does it according to the riches of his grace. You see, this is what the grace of God does. And listen to me today. You can't find this anywhere else. You could never find it anywhere in history. It's never been there. You can search high and low. Every religious system that exists in the world is missing one thing, the most important thing. Grace doesn't exist. It's not there. It's only in the gospel. It's only through Christ that there's grace and forgiveness. There's no religion. There's no philosophy. There's no psychology. There's nothing that can do for us what needs to be done except God through the gospel. And he does it all by his grace. It's all by his grace. I spent the, a few hours yesterday with a dear friend of mine. I got a call on Friday, said... Uh, His name is Will. Will is on his way out. Probably doesn't have a day, any more than a day to to live. He's 94 years old. We've had many conversations in the past few years about his, uh, of course, you know, he's well aware that one day he was going to depart this world. So we've, we've had many conversations about his memorial service and he's asked me to do the service. And so I went yesterday and, I was there with him at his bedside and amazing thing. He's 94 and he's at this time, he's confined to his bed, but he's still so mentally sharp. It's, it's unbelievable. He's sharper than I am. And he's quoting to me paragraphs from poems and, um, you know, we're talking and he says, you know, I don't really want, I don't really want any singing at my service necessarily. He's 94. He's, you know, some of the modern music is a little much for him. He says, but you know, we need to have amazing grace, but, but I don't want anybody to sing it. Okay. He says, I want you to, I want you to just tell it. And I, and I want you to do it like, like a, a thespian. I want you to do it like, you know, like you're on a stage and you're in a play. And he starts demonstrating to me how, how he wants me to do this. Amazing grace. Then you pause. <laughs> and then you explain what grace is. And then you come back with, oh, how sweet the sound. You know, he's, so he's telling me this and. um, you know, he's been a dear friend of mine for so many years. I've been his pastor. I've had the privilege of being his pastor for over 25 years. He and his wife. He's 94. She's 93. And 
he came to Christ at the age of 55. He was a Navy officer. He was on the deck of the ship that took the Japanese surrender in uh, the Bay of Tokyo, World War II veteran. A wonderful, wonderful man. But he came to Christ at 55. He's 94 now. He loves the Lord. But he, as he was lying there in his bed, and you know, as he was instructing me on what he'd like me to do, he was also at the same time in giving me the instruction, he was rejoicing in the grace of God. And so as he's telling me how he wants him to do this, and then he, he comes to the point, he says, and amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And then he emphasized that saved a wretch like me. I, I want, you know, he's telling me, I want you to drive that point home. That's the reality. We're wretches. But yet we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sin. How is this possible? It's according to the riches of his grace. God's grace is why we can be forgiven today. Why no matter what you've ever done can be expunged, washed away. God says he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The new covenant, the, the, the beauty of the new covenant is that our sins and our lawless deeds, he will remember them no more. Through the prophet Micah, he said he will take our sins and he will cast them in the very deepest part of the ocean. That is amazing. That is amazing. There are people today who are in mental hospitals. There are people today who aren't in mental hospitals, but who are mental cases because of the guilt of their sins, because of their inability to find forgiveness. But the forgiveness is there. It's available. It's free through Christ. Nothing else is like this in the world and nobody else can provide it for you. I trust that today, many of you know what I'm talking about by experience. You know what it's like. Your sins have been forgiven. Those things that you've done, the burden of that has been lifted off your shoulders. You might look back on it with regret, understandably. You might grieve over it, understandably. It's probably good. So you won't go back to it. But you know that you know that you've been forgiven. And you can lie down at night, put your head on your pillow, and you can rest, and you can know that, you know, if I, if I don't wake up in the morning, I'll be safe at home in heaven, not because I'm such a good person, but because by his grace, he forgave my sins and redeemed me through his blood. If you don't know that today, if you don't know your sins are forgiven, today's the day for you to know that by experience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ through his blood. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins, that our sins are forgiven, that we're no longer bearing the burden of them, the shame of them, the guilt of them, but we have been set free. We praise you for that.